Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia and streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are also available via iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and last weekend I had the pleasure of talking with Damien Mander here in the 3CR studios. Damien's the Australian founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, and he lives in southern Africa where the IAPF trains and resources local rangers to protect wildlife from professional poachers. Now, Damien's life journey is an unlikely one. When he left school, he joined the Royal Australian Navy and qualified as a naval clearance diver. Then he became a special operations sniper in the Special Forces. He then spent several years working as a mercenary in Iraq and also alongside the US Army. Damien eventually left Iraq after 12 tours of duty. Then on an adventure trip in Zimbabwe, he saw for himself the world of poaching. That experience, it seems, changed everything. Damien, thank you so much for coming on the show. Just to start with, you gave an amazing TEDx talk in Sydney a few years ago, and you spoke of a a fundamental motivating force to find courage within. Your work with IAPF surely puts you up against a large, lucrative and ruthless organised crime industry that that would make you a target. Where do you find your courage? Uh, G'day, Kate. Uh, Thanks very much for, um, for having me on the show. Uh, I mean, there's there's varying levels of of courage, and, and I mean, the, I suppose there's the, the 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 first level of courage for me was finding the will to to help animals or to accept the truth uh, that we exploit animals the way we do as a species. Uh, the second level of courage, I suppose, is diluted a bit by the the, the skill set that I have. Uh, and the job that we have to do in terms of going out there on the front lines and protecting animals. Uh, we, we are dealing with organised crime. Uh, we're dealing with people who use military tactics, AK-47s, heavy calibre rifles, uh, to go out and hunt animals like elephant and rhino. Uh, and I have a skill set, a, a very niche skill set, which is unfortunately required to, to protect those types of animals. So, you know, we don't have time to sit back and, and reflect too much. Uh, it's an ongoing war. Uh, one that's being fought on, on, on many levels and on, on many continents. But um, you know, as much as I would like to be an activist and, and, and spend all my time speaking up for all animals, I have that niche skill set that is required over there on the front lines. 
what about the local rangers that you recruit? How do you recruit local guys that know those very real risks involved? I mean, surely your, your vegan message is a hard sell in Africa. Yeah, it doesn't stick too well with, uh, with cultures that have been brought up on, on hunting. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's where they got their food from. They went out hunting. Uh, but, um, you know, when I came over there, I came from, I came from Iraq. Uh, just done three years in Iraq. And you sort of see what the world does in terms of the open checkbook to, to go and fight for a patch of oil. And then you come across and you see these guys that have given up living with their families uh, for up to 11 months of the year. They, they live out in the bush. Uh, the biggest threat they face is not so much the poachers they're trying to stop, it's the animals they're trying to protect. And these guys were, you know, these are, these are people who have signed up to protect nature and they in turn have to do the job of a soldier. Uh, again, unfortunately required. And uh, they, you know, I got there, they're walking around in, in, you know, some of them are doing patrols on bare feet. They've got worn through uniforms. You know, they might have one rifle for a patrol, um, you know, these old radios. And, uh, you know, I just thought, where's, where's our priority? You know, these guys aren't protecting lines on a map uh, or, or patches of oil in, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, these guys are fighting for the heart and lungs of the planet. And, uh, it sort of made me re reevaluate, uh, you know, my my position on things. You know, this is this, and I, and I initially went over there for adventure. Uh, I'd done the special forces thing. Uh, I was a clearance diver in the navy. Done a dozen tours to uh, to the Middle East, to Iraq. I spent a year in South America. You know, I was where where could Damien Manda go and have his next selfish adventure, or where's he going to get his next pictures for Facebook? And uh, running around the bush hunting poachers in Africa seemed seemed like it. So I got a very, a very uh, stark awakening. Um, not only with what I saw, but what I saw within myself. And uh, you know, I saw myself as as, as being selfish. Uh, here's these guys that have given up everything in their life for as little as a hundred or two hundred bucks a month, and I was over there trying to have a, an adventure on the on the on the back of their hard work. Uh, and so I. You know, at that very moment, knew that I was completely full of shit. Refreshingly honest. You don't hear that often. It's been claimed that poverty has driven many of these poachers to do what they do, and that they they're simply the the tragic victims of their own circumstance. How do you respond to that? Yeah, look, uh, there are varying levels of poaching. There's subsistence poaching where people are trying to put food on the table. They're out there hunting uh, in a small game. Uh, but then you move through to the, the commercial levels of poaching where people are laying three or 400 snares out in the bush, which choke an, it chokes an animal to death. Uh, and then you move it up a level to your ivory and, and rhino horn poaching syndicates. This is organized crime. These are the same people involved with child prostitution, human trafficking, drugs, guns. Some of these guys that were catching and getting paid up to 20,000 US dollars a night. They're living in two, three-story houses. They're driving around in brand-new four-wheel drives, designer clothes, smartphones. You need to get out of your mind this this uh, you know, this poor African living in a mud hut who's just trying to put food on the table. You're talking about serious organised crime, guys using military tactics. And us as an organisation, what I set up when I went over there, uh, I didn't set up an organisation to go out there and and, and uh, you know pick up the little old lady who's out there collecting firewood in the national park or, or the guy who's trying to, to trying to put food on the table. We went out there to target 
the organisations that are involved with organised crime, but target them on the front lines. Uh, if you if you think of some of the bigger organisations that try and deal with with things on, on on multiple levels, and this is a war that is being fought on multiple levels. Talking about demand reduction in Asia, uh, policy change within governments, tougher laws and penalties, working with communities, uh, working on the ground. Think of that as as your entire army. Think of our organisation as the special forces. So we're the guys that go out to the front lines of some of the toughest situations and deal with this, to deal with that problem right there and then. We're, we we run them with a, a special forces mandate or culture where small groups of guys that get big jobs done with minimal resources. Now, you're at war with the poachers, and you, they're your own words. You're, you're at war. And I understand that IAPF has shot poachers, and which many would say is counter to the the non-violent ideology of veganism. How do you justify those actions? Yeah, uh, very good question. You know, when we, we you look at Zimbabwe as an example, there's a shoot-on-site policy for armed poachers. And so we can uh, literally, if there's, a, there's a, an armed poacher there, you can shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, different laws in other countries where we operate, such as uh, South Africa and Mozambique, what we've done as an organisation is, is taken a step back and say, hey, listen, let's just... Let's just chill out and uh, you know, let's use or implement the correct escalation of the use of force with our rangers and our training. So from day one, guys are taught the correct escalation of the use of force, and it's much much like any Western law enforcement model. Uh, so what we aim to do is use the minimum amount of force required to get the job done. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that lethal force cannot be used in the first instance if, if one of the rangers' lives is at risk. Uh, but um, at the end of the day, their job is to poach. Our, jo- our job is to stop them. Um, it's it's tragic. It's a war. Uh, you know, I, I I don't like the fact that uh, people like me are required to hold on to what we have left. And I I get go to work every day knowing that what I do is not the answer. Okay, there's people much smarter than me. There's whole government departments working on how to get communities to a point where they don't need to poach or to eradicate organised crime or to take out the kingpins in Asia. Uh, that's above my pay grade. Our job is to is to stop the hemorrhaging, to hold on to what we have left. So by the time the people with all the degrees and the suits and the conferences uh, have figured out what the hell's going on, not just in Zimbabwe, Mozambique and South Africa, but on a global scale, uh, we've actually still got some wildlife left to uh, to work with. So what are those long-term prospects like? What is the risk that some of those those iconic species will be extinct soon? Yeah, look, there's uh, we're looking at up to 30 to 40,000 elephants a year that have been killed. Uh, there's still 400 to 600,000 elephants on the continent. Uh, 1,500 rhino a year being killed. There's only 25,000 rhino left on there. They're, these are iconic species. These are reasons why... Uh, people travel to Africa. Uh, there's a reason why one in 13 people on the continent are employed uh, directly or indirectly through the tourism in- industry. So if if you look at uh, what will happen on a, on a much larger scale of wildlife or these iconic species such as elephant and rhino go extinct, then the flow-on effects for that into these communities is going to be catastrophic. Uh, the UN predicts there's going to be 2 billion people on the continent by 2040. And I don't know how do you convince someone uh, who doesn't know where their next meal is coming from that the long-term preservation of wildlife is more important than food on the table tonight. You know, these are these are problems that we have to face. Uh, you've got a, an increasing human population putting an increasing and more determined amount of pressure on a decreasing uh, natural resource base. Uh, 
and uh, I don't I don't have the answers. I honestly don't. Uh, what I do know is that when we go into an area and when we secure it, uh, that everything in that area is being protected from poachers. We we build uh, and implement and manage strategies that protect the hardest animal in an ecosystem to protect animals that are being targeted by paramilitary forces. So these are uh, generally elephant or rhino. And what happens when we protect those two animals? Uh, everything else in that ecosystem is being looked after uh, because it basically stops poachers from coming in and 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 uh, you know, doing doing what they do, uh, coming in to poach. Um, yeah, there's there's uh, you know dwindling dwindling national parks and 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 nature reserves on the continent. Uh, you got to look at these these areas, these wilderness areas, like a like a car and the animals inside the, the 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 forests and the wilderness areas is like the engine in the car it's what makes it works what makes it ticks what gives them a tourism value for people to come uh, so when the animals get poached out uh next thing the fences go then the trees go and the water goes and you know you're left with this this barren state of desertification and uh you know we we need to we need to stop this as rapidly as possible uh, when you weigh um, what we do against some of the big global uh, issues that we're facing, climate change, human population growth, deforestation, the most immediate thing we can do today is to hold on to what we have left. And that's why uh, basing your uh, or our operations around protecting animals like elephant and rhino is so critical to that, to holding on to what we have left. Maybe you could tell me really specifically about the work that IAPF does and also how those international markets for endangered wildlife work. Yeah, okay, so um, 90% of what we do is managing people. Uh, we've got these rangers who are, uh, that we, you know, when we take on an operation, uh, they're often very under-trained, under-equipped uh, and under-motivated uh, because they feel under-appreciated and they are, as, as a group of people, they are one of the most least appreciated groups of people in the world. Our job is to take these people and make them believe that their job is the most important job in the world, uh, holding on to what we have left and protecting tens of thousands of animals in, in, the, in the reserves that we operate, insects, birds, fish, trees, water. Uh, so when you have a motivated ranger, this guy or girl, uh, mostly guys, but... Uh, they, they're going to get up and they're going to go walk 20 or 30 kilometers in a day. And when they're walking the 20 or 30 k's a day, they find the footprints in the dirt. They find the footprint in the dirt and we track it down and it leads to poachers. Uh, and we're able to stop that poacher from killing an animal or from killing the next animal. So we basically, we, we build um, multi-tiered strategies to go into areas, uh, bring multiple stakeholders together, uh, and work together with existing resources that they have um, to make them more effective uh, as part of an overall collaborative strategy. And then we bring in resources on top through donations from an international community. And it is 90% is just basic out there patrolling each day trying to stop poachers. The last 10% is the, is the fancy stuff. It's the computer analytics. It's the, it's the, the drones, the, the thermal imaging, the special operations tactics. Uh, but unless you've got that first 90% right, having a motivated game ranger that believes in what he does, that is ready to go out there every day and risk his life uh, for, for these animals, then nothing else matters. And again, we... we we're not the organisation putting up the billboards in Asia. We're not the organisations that go into the communities and work. 
with the local communities. We partner with organisations that specialise as much in that as what we do uh, on the front lines. But we're the, we're, we're the guys at the coalface who get the job done and our, our, our mission is, is wildlife conservation through direct action. Uh, what was the second question? We're talking about the... the, the How the international markets work for endangered mm. wildlife. Yeah, so you've got, to, you've got to think of this as, as, as like a pipeline, but a, a pipeline where you've got a very wide opening uh, at the beginning. That means you've got a lot of poaching happening on the ground and then that, that, that rapidly narrows down to this very thin pipeline uh, and then opens back out again at the other side where you've got a big consumer market. And where we've failed, uh, I think, uh, as an industry... Uh, or, or haven't failed, haven't succeeded yet, um, is not being able to attack the, the, the finest part of that pipeline, and that is the, the people that are trafficking this overseas, and that comes down to uh, cross-government uh, or cross-border collaboration, uh, international sharing of intelligence, uh, tougher laws, tougher penalties, and actually going after uh, the people that we know are involved uh, with that narrow part of the pipeline. But uh, again, it's it's rhino horn is a, is a, is another commodity. It's like drug, drugs. It's like guns. Uh, it's like uh, it's like a, it's like human trafficking. It's just another commodity. Uh, ivory. It's the same thing. It's just cash. These guys don't see a rhino running around in the bush. They see a dollar sign. There is more behind to what you see. Figure out the riddle, cause when he lied, my world was blown. I nearly died. From remote communities to the big cities, and representative of our many different voices, cultures, languages, and beliefs, Community Radio is the voice of local communities. But this voice is being threatened. The recent federal budget has reduced funding for community digital radio, a move that puts all community digital radio services at risk. Show your support for live and local voices by signing the petition at keepcommunityradio.org.au. Help keep the community in your radio. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. That last track was Dallas Frasca with All My Love. Now we're hearing from Damien Manda, who's the founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, established to protect Africa's wildlife. Damien's now explaining how the international syndicates for endangered species work. But I'll, I'll explain it uh, from a, a rhino poaching perspective. Uh, so you've got a level one guy, which is, is the guy that's pulling the trigger. Level two will be the, the syndicate leader, uh, the guy who, who's running multiple teams of poachers and renting out the rifles to these guys on the ground. Your level three is your buyer and trafficker uh, at, a local, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a local level. Uh, your level four is the person taking overseas. Your level five is the person overseas who's, who's responsible for bringing the stuff uh, from overseas, the, the, you know, the, the, the kingpins. Uh, we as an organisation generally work uh, level one and level two. Um, what we have been able to do, achieve lately, uh, and very recently we made a level three arrest in, in Mozambique, um, 
in collaboration with the local authorities, and that's just because of the the information we're able to get out of the people, the level one guys and the level, the level two guys that we've been arresting. Uh, we're able to start moving up the chain, and look, there's an endless supply of 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 level one poachers who are willing to risk their life for twenty twenty grand a night, and uh, it's 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 like the drug the drug industry. And there's people. That, there's always going to be an endless supply of people that are willing to go out there and uh, you know try and try and make a quick and an easy dollar. And uh, where we need to target is uh, is stopping the, the the firearms getting into the system uh, because there is a it takes a very specific firearm to bring down an elephant or a rhino uh, to get those out of the system. But then to also where st- where are these firearms coming from? Uh, a lot of them are actually being traced back to the Czech Republic at the moment. Um, uh, even old, uh, you know, particularly in Mozambique, we're operating uh, antique firearms coming across from from Portugal. Given the you know that Mozambique used to be a Portuguese colony, um, but uh, even homemade heavy caliber rifles that we're seeing now, uh, as we take more and more out of the system. So, as well as targeting firearms and trying to get those out of the uh, out of the system we also need to be moving up the chain and, and and working with the local authorities to go after the level two the level three uh and and then working with uh entities such as interpol uh to make sure the level four and level five guys are, are also being targeted but it comes down to a priority um situation governments need to to to, to reprioritize uh wildlife trafficking as, as something that um you know, requires more resources and more attention. What is the market for rhino horn? Why should a rhino horn be removed from a rhino? Um, well, yeah, I mean, a rhino horn belongs on a rhino. Uh, it's been used, uh, has been used as far back as 2,000 years in traditional Vietnamese and traditional Chinese medicine uh, and is still used today in traditional medicine. Uh, what we're seeing now is, uh, uh, particularly with Vietnam, is a rising economic superpower in Southeast Asia. Uh, they don't travel a lot. They stay at home and spend a rising disposable income on consumer-related goods uh, or status-related goods, and uh, that's what we're seeing with rhino horn now. Uh, we've seen instances in the past with bear bar, with deer antler wine, with with, with soft-shell tortoise, uh, which were previously very uh, rare and exclusive in Vietnam. The market then oversupplied them, uh, and they lost that uh, what we call the f- the Ferrari uh, syndrome effect. You know, when 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 nobody has it, everybody wants it. So they lost that shine. So we don't know, um, you know, if if flooding the market with with rhino horn that's sitting in stockpiles is going to uh, reduce demand in Vietnam or if it's going to ignite it. Uh, but what we do know is biz- business elite uh, in Vietnam are using rhino horn as a. Uh, something to present uh, or display. Uh, they're crushing it up, they're snorting it, they're drinking it, mixing it with Viagra, uh, and it demonstrates that, uh, hey, I, I, I can afford to uh, pay for something that's worth 75000 US dollars a kilogram. Uh, so it sounds crazy, but, um, you know, we... we uh, we do similar here. We do similar here. Uh, the, the use of traditional medicine... Uh, is, is I mean, it's it's huge in in South America. It's huge in I mean, it's even bigger in in, in uh, Africa. And you know, we often you know, we see these posters around saying rhino horn is not medicine. I guarantee you, to the person who's using it as as part of a or a form of traditional medicine, uh, someone who's been brought up on a cultural a culture of of 
of the use of traditional medicine and in, in, within a culture where the use of traditional medicine is deep, is as deeply ingrained as DNA, DNA itself. Uh, if that person believes that rhino horn works, uh, th- then it works. We 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 cannot we cannot get up and and try and uh, say hey yeah, you listen guys we ran this thing through the ran, ran this thing uh, through the lab and uh, you know we we can't find any any medicinal use uh, so therefore you guys are you guys are wrong you know I've been to, I've I've been into the jungles um, of the delta and lived with traditional healers. Uh, uh, to try and understand their side of things, I've been to Hanoi. I've seen the whole, you know, uh, traditional medicine hospitals that take up entire city blocks. Seen the traditional medicine ambulances running around uh, around the city. Uh, we've seen people who are as highly trained in Western medicine as they are in Eastern medicine, and using a combination of chemotherapy and then uh, traditional medicine to ease the the uh, symptoms of chemotherapy. So there's. We don't know if demand reduction in China, in, in China and Vietnam uh, is something that can happen within it, within our generation. But what we do know is, is that uh, if we don't uh, continue to, to focus our attention uh, onto the front lines, then by the time we've figured out if demand reduction is going to work or not, there's going to be nothing left. You've got a significant profile now. Over the last um... C-grade celebrity. (laughs) (laughs) However you want to describe it. But you have a significant profile. You've done a lot of media. And as a result, I imagine that you probably get access to a lot of people that you need to talk to. How difficult was your work prior to that when you were just the new conservation do-gooder, the latest kid on the block? Yeah, look, we, you know, I, I honestly, when I when I set this thing up in Zimbabwe, I thought I'm going to spend the rest of my life out in the bush training anyone that'll listen. And then 60 Minutes decided to do a story with us, uh, and things sort of went went crazy from there. Um, the the TED talk as well, I would say that the TEDx talk at the Sydney Opera House has has probably brought us, you know, more attention than uh, than anything else we've done in terms of of media. Justifiably and, so. And it's 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 strange, you know, because I started writing that talk, and and I was asked to write about the work we do, and it was it was actually during putting that talk together that that really made me start to understand, um, you know, the the, the broader spectrum of where where my focus needs to be, uh, not only on the front lines, but as a as a person that has a voice, uh, and. Um, yeah, look, it's growing over time. I'm I'm 36. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not going anywhere. This is this is me for the rest of my life. I, I'm dedicated to 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 animals and fighting for nature. Um, you know, I just uh, I I have to spend a, a majority of my time uh, on the front lines in Africa because uh, anybody can be an activist. Anybody can have a voice uh, if they choose to do so. Um, but there are not a great deal of people that have the sort of niche skill sets that I have uh, that are that are willing to give up everything and move to Africa and and uh, make the protection of of wildlife there you know the rest of their, their their days do you feel that there's a lot of self-sacrifice involved have, do you feel like you've given up a lot or would you be do you do you enjoy what you do no I feel like I, I, I owe a lot uh, it's a responsibility. Uh, it's not a, ma- a matter of what I've given up. It's a matter of what I what I still owe. Uh, I have. A, um, Do you have monkeys on your back, so to speak? No, no. I don't. There's nothing I've done that I regret, except for for taking as long as I did to to understand that um, 
I should be doing a lot more for, for animals, for ignoring things that I knew were the truth. Uh, you know, we sort of push things to the back of the mind because they, 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 they challenge our conveniences and, and what we've been brought up to believe uh, and refuse to, refuse to investigate. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm you know, sort of grateful that, uh, that, you know, during the process of that, putting that uh, TEDx talk together, I was able to uh, finally come honest with myself. Because it was, I mean, it was profound. It was quite profound. Tell me the, about the inroads that have been made with rhinos. I know it's still quite a tenuous situation, but I understand that, that they've been brought back from the brink of extinction. Uh, yeah, the, back in the late 1950s and 1960s, um, early 1960s, the southern white rhinoceros, uh, there was, I think, down to around 500 left. Uh, Dr. Ian Player, uh, who uh, not only a mentor for me, uh, was on our advisory panel, um, since passed away, but um, largely credited with leading a team that, that saved that animal from extinction by bringing what was left into Mfalosi Game Reserve in South Africa and sending breeding herds out around the, around the world. And today we have about 20,000 rhino left. Uh, we, you know, all that hard work is, is, is under threat of being undone now. Uh, we are sitting at a point now where we're eight years into what has been a losing war. Uh, there's, there's about 25,000 rhino left on the African continent. Uh, South Africa has 20,000 of those rhino. 10,000 of those rhino are in, in one park. It's Kruger National Park. Uh, Kruger National Park shares a 355-kilometre border with another country, and that country is Mozambique. In that country, in 2013, rhinos were declared extinct. So I couldn't understand how we've got this massive wilderness area on both sides of the border, but uh, a rhino wandering from South Africa, Kruger National Park, into Mozambique had a life expectancy of 12 to 24 hours. Um, we looked at you know this whole rhino war situation that, that's going on has, has fueled you know, all these new NGOs and, and organisations that have started up, and we looked at uh, what what was happening uh, along the Mozambique Kruger border there, and within South Africa itself, there was around four hundred and twenty uh, not for profit organisations or charities that were focused on uh, protecting some of them protecting smaller reserves or smaller populations or. Uh, other areas within the country, but we went over and looked at that, what, what is termed the Greater Lobombo Conservancy. It's a piece of land that separates uh, most of the world's rhino and most of the world's rhino poachers. Uh, Kruger accounts for around 65 to 70% of rhinos that are killed each year in South Africa. South Africa is the epicenter. It's the global stage of, of rhino poaching, and Kruger is, is the eye of the storm. And 80% of the people that do that poaching are Mozambique nationals. So they cross over the border from the east. Uh, they, they head west uh, through the Lobombo mountain ranges and into Kruger National Park. And the, and the, the heart, the concentration of, of Kruger's rhino population, which is, at, which is at the very southern quarter. And, you know, we looked at this piece of land and thought, you know, what's, what's happening here? And there was not one organisation supporting boots on the ground anti-poaching there so it's a piece of land that is separating you know to 10,000 rhino from all these rhino poaching syndicates it's a piece of land that had the least amount of support 
but still to uh, benefit the greatest number of rhino. And uh, in in you know the way what, the way we looked at it is the most critical piece of land on the planet for rhino conservation. We're sitting here now at a, at a, at a, at a at a time where particularly people involved with with animals or conservation, we're, we're flooded with dread and bad stories all the time. And, you know, we, we need a win. And there's, a, there's an opportunity here to have a big win, an iconic species, a species that's hardly evolved for millions of years, uh, a species which to me represents Mother Nature itself. It's, it's a species that's hardly evolved but we're pushing it closer and closer uh, to the brink of extinction through human greed uh, and the, the, you know, our want to grow bigger and faster and stronger. Um, you know, our, our, our lack of acknowledgement of what we're doing to the environment. Uh, and that rhino represents that to us. And here we are, we have an opportunity to, to actually demonstrate that as a generation uh, we can have something positive on our headstone uh, rather than something negative. I want to be part of the last generation that has a negative impact on this planet. You know, I've got a three-year-old kid um, and I want him to grow up with a mentality that you know, we, you know, nature comes first. What are the options for rhino conservation? I, I understand that there's talk about some sustainable harmless harvesting of rhino horn and even relocating individuals out of Africa. Can you comment on this? Yeah, there's there's been huge um, propositions made for varying uh, ways to save the rhino. We're talking about international trade in rhino horn, uh, putting a high high voltage electric fence along the Kruger Mozambique border, uh, shifting large numbers of animals uh, away overseas, uh, as far away as Australia. Even uh, a shoot on site policy for armed poachers, um, having a authority for South African forces to do hot pursuit into Mozambique. All this was proposed before anybody thought, let's go to the source of the problem, which is in Mozambique, and see if we can do something there. So we went in, uh, we started working with uh, the Mozambique government uh, and some of the local stakeholders in 2013. Uh, We finally established all the contracts that we needed to go into the Greater Lombombo Conservancy, that piece of land I spoke about, Uh, and we started there on the 9th of June 2015. Um, since we've been operating there, the areas directly west of us in Kruger National Park, uh, where we've been operating and supporting, have experienced a decrease in rhino poaching of 90%. Uh, we've also established uh, and maintained now a safe haven for rhinoceros back in the areas that we operate in Mozambique. And Mozambique is about to be officially reclassified as a rhino range state. Uh, so and a rhino coming across the border has a, has a survival rate now uh, of 90 to 95% whereas they previously had, as I said, that life expectancy of 12 to 24 hours. So we've created a formula that works just by going to the source of the problem and addressing it there. Um, We believe that we can, uh, if we can get the resources we need to to replicate what we've done in the areas where we've been operating, uh, we can continue this success all around the southern part of Kruger National Park. The southern part of Kruger National Park is that area that has the highest concentration and highest numbers of rhino in the world. Um, International trade in rhino horn is... uh, The argument for it is as good as the argument against it. Uh, That comes from a vegan... Uh, we're, we're 38 years into a CITES or a convention on the international trade in endangered species uh, ban on the on the on the sale of rhino horn. Uh, I don't know if um, 
if releasing horn into the market is going to is going to be able to fund conservation or if it's going to lead to a, you know a, a, an even more um, a rapid mass extinction uh, at the moment for a landowner uh, or a person who has an, a, a national park a rhinoceros is a, is a liability uh, because of the, the de- determination that poachers are going to come after that uh, animal you need to spend hundreds of thousands of, thousands of dollars on uh, anti-poaching operations basically setting up a paramilitary force uh, and with that comes the risk to your rangers, the risk to yourself. Um, I I don't know if if being I mean there's there's just in South Africa alone there's thirty tons of of stockpiled rhino horn. Maybe who knows? Maybe if that stuff could be sold uh, and the money put back into conservation, um, doesn't that just further commodify? the rhino horn then it creates more de- demand because it commodifies it yeah we, we don't know that maybe maybe it it, it uh it, it reduces that shine that i spoke about uh and you know if if, if so much of a, it it is available now then maybe it's not so exclusive I mean, maybe people people don't want it as much or maybe uh, they can continue harvesting because rhino horn can be taken from an animal uh grows back at the, the rate of one kilogram a year you can harvest the horn off and it grows back just like a fingernail or just like hair. Uh, but does the rhino need it? The, the rhino does need it, uh, but it, it, you know what, I, I would rather see a rhino with no horn than a rhino lying dead in a pool of blood. And, you know, I, don't, I, I, try, and, I try and step back from the emotional side of this and, and look at it uh, from a logical side. And again, I don't know if this is the answer or if it's not. All I know is that at ground level, we're fighting a war. People are dying, both rangers and poachers and and most of all rhinos. And, uh, you know, we it's our responsibility to look at what the different options are and to remove the emotional side from it and look at it from a logical and, and long-term sustainable uh, uh, solution. Again, your TEDx talk very clearly indicates that for you that this isn't simply conservation work. Um, it's not just about saving Africa's flagship species, but it's also about veganism. But are there times when you feel that there's a need to separate these into two issues in your media and, and speaking engagements for IAPF? Do you need to leave veganism at the door sometimes? And, and how do you walk that line? Yeah, I know, definitely. Um, whenever my board of directors tell me that... Uh... <laughs> I have to um I have to remember that uh, we're an anti-poaching organization not a not a not a, a vegan organization but Damien Mander is is both so when I, I speak to you today I, I we're talking about the organization that I founded and the organization that I I, I help run but also uh, you know the person behind the organization so there's uh I mean there's various times of various conferences where it's inappropriate to to uh you know if I'm if I'm at a rhino conference there's no point in me trying to give veganism a, a plug to a room full of rhino conservationists uh but um i feel an equal responsibility uh across across both spectrums uh, and it's not just about veganism it's about uh it's about caring for animals and that's you know, and, and and nature uh, and i suppose it encompasses more than just veganism uh, it's, it's a it's a lifelong dedication, such as such as being a vegan. Um, but it's something that everybody has to realise that it it doesn't just have to be a, a direct leap and uh, overnight you're going to become a vegan. It's it's 
there's something where we we start to acknowledge that everything we do in our day to day lives has an impact on on nature and whether it's a reduction uh, in, in our meat consumption eventually, which may lead someone to become a vegetarian or become a vegan. If we, I mean, if we can just reduce our meat consumption, uh, the the effects that that can have on our planet and on our environment uh, are going to be so. I mean, it's it's the, it's, the, it's the single greatest way that we can reduce global warming is to reduce our meat consumption. Yep, it's time that more people understood that. Other than the very obvious and important financial assistance that IAPF needs. Yeah. How else can how else can we help? Uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's uh, you know it's money that that uh, makes the makes the machine tick, but we have you know, everything we do. Uh, we we have a, a support base now, which spans uh, you know r- right around the world. Um, people that, that contribute, whether it's five bucks a month or fifty thousand dollars a year, you know we um, our support base is is our very foundation. That is what the rest of the organisation sits on. It's the the people that have decided that they're going to contribute, and they want to have a direct impact with their money. They want to make sure that the money they put in today is actually doing something tomorrow. Uh, on top of that, we have our boards of directors, then we have our country managers, we have our project managers, we have our team leaders, and then we have, most importantly, our rangers, the guys who are out there uh, on the very front lines. So we have, I mean, it may, be, it may be a graphic designer in Melbourne that helps us do a poster for a fundraiser. It may be a lawyer that helps us look, to, look over a contract. Uh, it may be a paramedic that comes over and spends time with our rangers and teaches them uh, first aid. We have what we call our Green Army Program. So we have people of all walks of life, uh, all ages, uh, generally from 16, 17 and above, um, come out and spend time with our rangers on the front line in Zimbabwe. Uh, Zimbabwe, one of the most beautiful and, I would say, in Southern Africa, and you can attest to this, uh, safest countries. And they go and spend time out there living with the rangers in the bush, attend to camp, um, they go out patrolling, checking for snares, checking the boundaries, monitoring the the population of critically endangered black rhino that we have there, and it it, it achieves two things. Primarily, it uh, gives people an opportunity to come and see what rangers do, and what they experience, and how they live, and and how they can go back home and become ambassadors for 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 the jobs that these people do. But most importantly, it it makes our rangers recognise that people around the world care that they're not just in this this fight alone because it, it can be a, th- a very thankless task for a person who lives in a remote location in the bush and uh, is, is his job is to wake up at any time of the day uh, and go out and stand uh, with his own life between a rhino and, and the bullet of a poacher. You've made veganism very unaussy. Thank you for that. Uh, actually, <laughs> just, just on that, I've just done a... Um, just done a documentary with with Louis uh, Fissero, Fissero, uh the guy that did the Cove and Racing Extinction. Yeah, I can um, never pronounce his last I name can't right. Remember, great, but I know. Yep. great guy. He's just done a show, uh, his latest documentary. You know, this is this is an Oscar winner. Um, done a documentary called Game Changers, uh, and it's it's sort of follows the story of a UFC fighter who was a, who, who changed over to veganism. Uh, because he, you know, he he had learnt through his research that it was a faster recovery time for injuries, uh, and that's that's uh, James uh, Lightning Wilkes. 
We've so, had him interviewed on this show. Really? There you go. Well, that's awesome. So between him and um, uh, and his team, uh, they came up to Zimbabwe uh, and shot with us. Uh, and they said, you know, like, and these these guys rang me. I was in, um, I was actually in New York and uh, doing a doing a talk over there at the Explorers Club. And you know, the, uh, Joseph Pace rang me and he said, "Listen, you know, look, we 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 need you for this show because they said your story." Uh, they said, you know, they've got the world's strongest man. They've got UFC fighters. They've got, you know, all these different uh, guys that have been following. They said, but yours sort of wraps it all up in 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 a way that says, you, you know, vegans aren't really aren't uh, the skinny little wussy dudes <laughs> that are that are that are cruising around. So uh, we filmed that, and hopefully uh, we'll release at Sundance in January. Um, executive producer is, is James Cameron, who did Titanic. So it's, I mean, it's got a huge crowd, uh, a huge crew behind it, um, some big names, uh, it's a big budget documentary, and I really think that is going to put it in people's faces that you, you you don't have to be this scrawny little hipster. runt <laughs> hipster wearing happy pants and uh, and dreadlocks to um, to uh, to to not eat animals, yeah. you know. Uh, so, what's the name of the, the, the movie again? It's called Game Changers. Game Changers. Okay. Yeah, and you can look it up on, on, online. Uh, and uh, yeah, looking forward for that to come out. Actually, uh, Louis. I mean, Louis is. Uh, I mean, such a, a, a. I mean, he's experienced with National Geographic, and you know, you can see the excitement in this guy's in, in this guy's eyes, and hear it in his voice when he talks about this program that's coming out. Uh, and the, the the committed team behind him, it's just, you know, just when they came out into the bush with us in Zimbabwe, you, it just it was like had this ball of positive energy around it. And, wow. And uh, to be a part of that, uh, it was a great privilege. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. We'll make sure that we get that on our um, on our website. I don't think least. you'll get a choice to uh, not get it on your website. I think, <laughs> it, I think it's going to be huge. Uh, you know, these guys are, are really pumped for it. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Now, there's enough conservationists in the world, I think. Uh, look, for me, I mean, the biggest the biggest realisation is that there's there's no ethical way to kill something that doesn't want to die. And so that helps me in my daily life understand uh, you know, the choices that I, I make and how they impact animals, um, not just on the front lines, but when I go to the, go to the supermarket, not, not picking, up, uh, picking up meat off the shelf or... And I think I think we all have a responsibility to to actually go back and and research where our, where our food comes from. Uh, it's all everybody has a mobile phone. Everybody has access to the internet. To to not to not do that is putting your head in the sand. Uh, to not understand the suffering that goes through uh, the lives of these animals, uh, just so they can reach out dinner plate. The disconnect that we. Um, you know, we we pay people to do things to animals that we would never do ourselves, uh, and if we did it to a human being, we'd be classed as torture and murder. And uh, you know, I think we, at the very least, we each have a responsibility uh, to just you know get online and have a read about where where your food comes from, man. Jeez, like it's uh, it's not pretty, and you know we can keep sticking our head in the sand, or we can we can actually wake up and and realize that. You know, these are these are sentient beings that that each have the capacity to suffer as as we suffer, and you know if 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 you wouldn't do it to yourself, 
or someone in your family, then why would you pay someone else to do it to another living being? And uh, that, you know, that 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 message I think is something that you know we just need to keep pushing. And, and even if you want to, even if you want to remove remove the, the the ethical side away from it, and and say, uh, you know, we're supposed to eat meat and all that. I mean, have a look at the environmental side and, and where we're going as a planet. We've got seven billion people on the planet who are getting an increasingly uh, meat rich diet, and. Uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't have to be Einstein to, to, well, he actually did figure it out. You don't have to be, uh, you don't have to be a bloody rocket scientist to see where this is all going. You know, we are on a one-way path to the sixth mass extinction and uh, we are eating ourselves to death. And uh, Mother Nature is not the endangered species we are. And if we can't figure that out and then, you know, just... You know, start making some, start making some, some real decisions. Start facing the truth, the truth that we all know is out there. Uh, then you know, we, I'm very worried about the the world that I'm bringing my son into, um, and then even step back a layer again and look at obesity and and the health issues we have and and what causes that and the bullshit that's been fed to us on on in terms of the food triangle and what we're supposed to eat and. Far out. I mean, <laughs> come on. Like to not research is used to be a flat earther. You know, we're sitting here basically denying what what uh, what is basic and common knowledge and is available at, at the tip of your, tip of your fingers. Do you think that disconnect that people have is it is it deliberate head in the sand or is it is it genuine ignorance? Oh, it's a, it's a it's a combination. People people don't want to face up to the truth because it it, it inconveniences their habits or 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 their taste buds. Uh, you know, I'm I'm 117 kilos. I think I'm in pretty good shape. Uh, you know, you don't you don't. I keep getting asked where do you get your protein from. So the same place, the tallest animal on the earth, the giraffe gets at the same place, the biggest, the elephant. Uh, the same place, some of the strongest, like a, a rhino or a, or a gorilla. You don't need to stuff your face with meat, with dead animals, to uh, to get protein. You can actually get it from plants too. How does this message go in 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 Africa? Do you champion the vegan message regularly in in Africa, or do you just do you just quietly practice it? No, it's tough. Uh, I do. I push it, um, but you get. And particularly within the conservation industry, or people that are involved with with environmental causes. Uh, I mean, the, these guys should be these guys should be championing it more than anyone. Uh, these are people who who dedicate their lives to looking after animals uh, or looking after the environment. And you turn up to a bloody conference, and there's a, there's a banquet of of meat laid out, and it's like, what what the hell is going on here? Like, are we are we? I mean, the irony of this is just it's it's crazy. Yeah, I find that in the in the climate change movement too. It, it's the the climate change authorities, the climate change activists. The, the vast majority of them are mad meat eaters. Yeah, you know, get get your head out of the sand and just go and do some research and, and figure out where your food comes from and, and own up to the truth. When did you figure it out? At what point in in your life did you figure this out? Uh, it was being in Africa, and uh, I, I knew it, uh, and I pushed it to the back of my head. Uh, because it was an inconvenience for me, and uh, you know, eventually, um, you know, I woke up one morning, and you know, it was around the time when I was writing that uh, the TEDx talk. You know, I woke up one morning and just said, "This, you know, it's, 
this is not not right. What I'm doing is not right, and I've known it for a long time, and I've ignored it. And uh, yeah, I suppose with each, I, I I don't know what the the switch in each person is. Um, we, uh, you know, I often get asked, you know, how do, how do we convert the kids, and how do we how do we get them on size? Each person has their own trigger. Uh, you know, mine was a, a process that I went through. Uh, it's a process not many people will go through. You know, going to Iraq and and seeing that side of things and then ending up in Africa and seeing what was happening to animals being poached over there and, you know, seeing a uh, a buffalo with a leg caught in a, in, a, in, a, in a wire snare who'd fought for so long she ripped her pelvis in half and when we had to destroy her, she gave birth to a stillborn calf. Seeing an elephant with its face cut off, you know, I can't I can't take school kids on an excursion to see that. Uh, but at the very least, you know, go and watch movies like Earthlings or, or, or Forks Over Knives, and and you know that's you know that 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 for that, that should be enough to at least get you thinking. And when you start to think, you start to understand. And when you start to understand, you start to realise you've got choices. Uh, and when you've got choices, you have to make one or the other. Thank you so much no, for, for coming in and spending time on, on Mother's Day when you could be with your family. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me and everything that you do and uh, giving people a platform to, uh, to you know, get their thoughts out there. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. You've been hearing from Damien Manda of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Now, before I split, I've got a few community announcements. The Animal Justice Party is screening Forks Over Knives this Thursday, May the 19th, in the Melbourne CBD. Sea Shepherd is holding beach cleanups in Brisbane, Exmouth and Melbourne this week. And Melbourne Pig Save is rallying in the CBD on Saturday, May the 21st. Details will make their way onto our Facebook page, but you can also look it up on their respective Facebook pages. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. You can contact us by email, info at freedomofspecies.org or via our Facebook page. We're also on Twitter. A great big thank you to Damien Manda and to Dallas Frasca, the Melbourne-based band suggested by Damien. They're going to take us out with another track. This one's called Success is the Best Revenge. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.